Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, state primary elections wrapped up across the country this past week. Progressives claimed multiple victories in Rhode Island, while moderates topped the ticket in Massachusetts. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu officially launched her run for Boston mayor with a trilingual hat trick. Governor Charlie Baker has an historic chance to select the entire state Supreme Judicial Court. Plus, President Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden battling it out on the campaign trail with close to 40 days before the presidential election. It's a full hour of insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Shannon Jenkins, Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And Peter Ubertaccio, Founding Dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and Associate Professor of Political Science at Stonehill College. Hello, all. Hello, hello. Hi, Callie. Hello. All three of my Mass Politics Profs are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's jump right in with those state primary elections, which saw um, progressives in Rhode Island seeming to take hold, but here in Massachusetts, a more moderate swing. Um, I'd like to begin with the Richard Neal race. Uh, He was challenged by Mayor Alex Morris of Holyoke, Massachusetts, and it was competitive. But in the end, Neal won. And uh, same thing in the 4th District, which was crowded. Well, I'll get to that a little bit later. And the person that topped that ticket was Jake Auchincloss, and I think most people would would describe him as the most moderate in that group of candidates. So first, uh, Richard Neal and Alex Morris. Shannon Jenkins, why do you think the swing to moderates is happening in Massachusetts, whereas in Rhode Island, the opposite is happening? You know, I think um, I talked to someone else about this, uh, you know, a progressive in Massachusetts asking that same question. Um, And I think the progressive sort of wing of the Democratic Party in Rhode Island got really organized. Um, The Democratic Party in Rhode Island made, I I would say, maybe a a series of faux pas sort of moves in 2018, um, where they endorsed a a bunch of candidates, all of whom happened to be not women. So um, I think that kind of really, in some ways, enraged and immobilized. Um, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in Rhode Island this election cycle. Um, and, I, and so as a result, I think they were more sort of coordinated um, and worked together uh, to really sort of um, make things happen this late. The progressives weren't sort of quite as organized or together across the state of Massachusetts. There were lots of them in MA4. You know, we had a progressive challenger in, you know, uh, in, in Morse, but 
there wasn't sort of that coordination. Now, coordination might be easier in a smaller state, right? Um, but I think that level of coordination helped propel a lot of the Rhode Island progressives um, to primary victories in a way that just didn't happen in, in Massachusetts. So just generally speaking, uh, Peter, do you think there is an assumption that Massachusetts is always going to tilt progressive, so maybe no need to have the kind of uh, uh, fierce coordination that Shannon referred to in Rhode Island? What, what's happening here? I, I think there is a part of that, right? There, there are a lot of progressives in very good standing uh, in in local or you know state rep or state senate offices. So it's not as if the Democratic Party here is bereft of of folks who consider themselves further out on on the left of, of the party spectrum. But I, I think Shannon is exactly right in that the, the coordination that's been happening in Rhode Island has been happening over a period of years. And uh, progressive voters or, or more moderate voters weren't, weren't sidetracked by um, campaigns going after the brass ring, right? So we had a, a really major Senate primary here in Massachusetts that fueled time, you know, energy, political oxygen away from some of the more local races that might have happened and uh, two major uh, congressional uh, primaries. And uh, all of that, you know, I think helped to uh, make it more difficult to coordinate. You know, the, the the progressive movement in Rhode Island is having its success at levels beneath the uh, gubernatorial and congressional level. And that may not always be the case, but it's, it's what they were focused on uh, here in this particular cycle. And that was not the case in Massachusetts, where, you know, all eyes were on this, you know, very significant uh, Senate race. Uh, and a lot of time and talent and, and treasure was also devoted to backing a number of Massachusetts presidential candidates earlier in the year. And that, again, you know, a lot of those activists who were supporting those campaigns were not uh, organizing on the ground. And I think if there's a lesson from the Rhode Island example, it's that it takes a lot of time and almost singular focus uh, to build up constituencies at the local level to see the successes that they're seeing. So, Aaron, one point that uh, Peter just made about uh, the Rhode Island progressives going down the line beyond some of the bigger races, um, they were fielding candidates in city council, just to make the point. Um, so to really strengthen the, the, the pr- progressive wing all the way down ballot. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it comes down to really party and organization. Um, That's a term we use in political science. It's not that hard to figure out. It's really sort of boring. It's doing all that work of recruiting candidates, of um, finding new voters, reaching out to voters, doing all that during a pandemic. It's organizing. It's the, you know, it's not the, um, you know, that all the cameras are on you kind of work. And what they did in Rhode Island is they hunkered down and they did the work. As Peter pointed out, there was um, organizations had already been, you know, built for the presidential campaign looking towards New Hampshire. Um, And so that's why I think they were effective. And on the Massachusetts side, the party and organization is already quite strong, and it is um, conservative Democrats, conservative in the sense of, you know, let's go with the people that have been there a while. Hierarchy matters. You know, wait your turn. Um, So it also suggests to me that, you know, sometimes we say New England political culture. And maybe we only do that when we live in Massachusetts <laughs> and Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maine, uh, and the others would like to remind that they are not carbon copies of Massachusetts politics. 
Well, if you had to speculate about the next go round, uh, not not the presidential campaign, but I mean, the next go round of local elections where the progressive wing will be in Massachusetts, um, where we are now, or will there be some further tipping to the left? You know, I think that really Donald Trump holds the answer to that. If Donald Trump stays in office, then there is uh, an enemy. There is um, someone to organize against. And so I think if Biden were to win, progressives will be happy, but not happiest. They obviously preferred Bernie Sanders. But I think if, you know, Democrats take the White House, then it takes a bit of the sales out of that progressive energy. But if Donald Trump were to stay in the White House, then I think that progressive wing would not be ascendant because, you know, all the incumbents won in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, each cycle sort of uh, creates pathways for progressives in Massachusetts. So it's not an automatic victory or not an overnight victory, I should say. It's one that's developing. Okay. Uh, Shannon and Peter, would, would you agree? I think in a certain sense, right, this also ties to the fact that the, that the Massachusetts legislature and the Massachusetts Democratic Party is, is, is pretty what we call in political science professionalized, right? They have lots of resources. They're full time. Um, and, and I think the, the, to Aaron's point about the conservative and Peter's point about the conservative established um, part of the Democratic Party, they have um, sort of some lock on um, party resources, local politics, that they, they wield that power pretty sort of um, to their own benefit. And, you know, the Rhode Island legislature and Democratic Party is a little less professionalized and, and those mistakes cost them. So I think there's an energy among progressives to do the same sort of work um, here in Massachusetts, whether they're successful. Um, it's gonna be a tougher road for them to sort of to battle uh, than, the, than in Rhode Island. And Peter. I, I agree completely. And I think, you know, what's going to start to happen after this presidential election is there's going to be murmurings of the next gubernatorial election here in Massachusetts. And there's already going to be a focus on the Boston mayoral election next year and the gubernatorial election the the year after that. And that that's going to focus the attention of a lot of activists who will not then be focusing on you know, the school board level or the, the boards of, of selectmen around or city councils around the state, right? Because they're going to they're gonna spend their time uh, and energy looking at, ahead at some of those statewide races that are going to be really important. Okay. Well, let's move on to some other big news around here. Well, big news in political junkie circles and certainly for you all to pay attention to. And that is that uh, Michelle Wu officially announced her candidacy. Let's take a listen. She released her Boston mayoral campaign video in English, Mandarin and Spanish this past week. And here is sound. I'm Michelle Wu and I'm running for mayor to make Boston a city for everyone. I'm a mom, a daughter of immigrants, and I've lived my whole life knowing what it's like to feel unseen and unheard even when you most need help. Mi nombre es Michelle Wu y me estoy postulando para ser tu próxima alcaldesa y para que Boston sea una ciudad para todos. So first of all, what do you guys think about the way that she announced her candidacy? Erin? Um, well, she didn't first. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's Marty true. Marty Walsh stole yeah. her thunder, and I think that was actually good for her campaign. But to how she actually chose to introduce herself, it was masterful. I mean, this is a political moment where um, uh, everyone's doing a lot of introspection on diversity. 
And we could potentially in Boston have a mayor who's trilingual. That's You're not going to vote for her based on that alone, but it sends a message, and it sends a message that I'm different than Marty Walsh, and I see the whole of Boston. He would obviously counter that he does too, but he would do so in only English. Yeah. Um, by the way, just so if, if folks weren't paying attention, um, Marty Walsh got a call from Michelle Wu a week before she did her official announcement, a week or so. And she gave him the courtesy of letting him know that she was going to run. And he let that information out uh, before she did. So that's what Erin uh, O'Brien of UMass Boston is referring to. Um, Shannon, how did you how did it strike you the way that she kicked off her campaign? You know, um, I think she's hitting on the themes that are, are going to be important to her campaign. The fact that, right, she's including all of Boston. Um, inequality is a huge problem in Boston right now. Right. Um, and so I think that note, right, of, of broadcasting her message from the start in three languages um, sends that and reinforces that message. And this is a political moment where diversity matters, um, particularly in a city like Boston, which is really, you know, become quite liberal uh, in the state. And, you know, representation until recently and in city offices hasn't reflected that, right? The Boston City Council was not very diverse until recently. Um, you know, the mayoral office has been occupied by a white male for I, I don't know how long, right? So I think Michelle Wu realizes that this is this is a great political moment for her. And I think her rollout really reinforce those sorts of themes that she's going to be um, campaigning on. And so I think it was well done. Uh, Peter. It was as good as you could possibly get to roll out uh, a mayoral campaign. And uh, the question is just, uh, will it play in West Roxbury? Mm. Meaning, you know, will she be able to use this to uh, increase turnout in some of the faster growing neighborhoods and, and more diverse neighborhoods of Boston, say, Dorchester, or is it not going to resonate among in neighborhoods that have a historically higher uh, voter turnout in a in a preliminary uh, or general election? And so, I'm not I'm not convinced that uh, the moment uh, extends that that far um, because she's not running against an unpopular mayor, and she's running against someone who has um, pretty decent approval ratings in the very neighborhoods that she is going to have to turn to her side. So a couple of things. First of all, Mayor Marty Walsh has not announced, even though he announced that she was running, he hasn't announced if he's running again. So there is that. Uh, the second thing is, is right after her announcement, GBH revealed a poll uh, looking at uh, the Boston mayoral race. This is the first Boston mayoral poll. And some interesting things came out of it. This is a GBH news poll conducted with the Mass Inc. polling group. And it showed that uh, Marty Walsh is an early favorite. That's not uncommon for an incumbent. Um, and we should note that a mayoral incumbent has not been kicked out since, oh, almost, goodness gracious, when there were horses and carriages around here. <laughs> so it'd be very, it's going to be a tough road to hoe anyway. Uh, but here's a couple of other things that are very interesting. A lot of people, not surprisingly, do not know her. Uh, they just don't know who she is, which is interesting because you feel like she's all over the place, but yet many people don't know her. Um, and the of the people who who participated, 400, 46% said Walsh, 23% said Wu, 4% said Andrea Campbell, uh, who has not announced but has been thought maybe she would run as well. 
The other thing that's really interesting is that Mayor Walsh has gotten a lot of uh, Black support. So Black voters are really standing strong behind him. And then finally, not surprisingly, uh, it appears that he's uh, people who feel strongly about how his leadership has been good, uh, feel that he has led firmly uh, with the COVID pandemic and how he has managed that. So now let's get your responses. I'll start with you, Aaron. I mean, what you're saying, and I think it's an uphill battle. And, you know, I, I sort of love races that, like this uh, uh, as an observer because we don't have any real good races to compare it to, right? Like, you know, you're talking about how will African-Americans go? We don't know. And so, you know, the, the, the best race to compare it to is Tito Jackson when he ran against uh, Marty Walsh and uh, lost by, I think, um, 30 points. I mean, it, it, it wasn't close. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I compare there, and then I also think in a very different race, you know, Ed Markey was started out way down to Kennedy and won. So, uh, I mean, don't count Marty Walsh out at all on this. And I think Peter's point that how long does um, the progressive moment in Boston uh, stay, that, that's an open question, too, because we're talking about a race that is way, way off. Yeah. And Shannon, we should point out that uh, Mass Inc. pollsters wanted to emphasize this is very early. And so, you know, many things can change, of course, uh, but it does give you, you know, an indication right now of of, of what people are feeling. Yeah. And I will have to say that I'm not at all surprised by the results about African-American voters. African-American voters tend to be reliably Democratic voters, but they're not particularly progressive voters. I mean, they're very pragmatic voters. Um, You know, African-American women almost single-handedly revived the campaign of Joe Biden in South Carolina, right? If you look at the Kennedy-Markey race, right, African-American voters were much more likely um, to support Kennedy, right? African-Americans are a very significant voting block um, in in Boston. And to the extent that, that Marty Walsh can keep that section of voters sort of nailed down, um, it is going to be very difficult to beat him. Peter? It, it's going to be a great race to watch because, you know, Michelle Wu has has um, been an up-and-comer in Boston politics now for quite some time. And so I, I think that um, she faces an uphill battle. Her, she and her team know that. Uh, mayors of Boston uh, are, are, relatively speaking, very powerful political figures, both within the city uh, and within the state. Marty Walsh has a, a lot of uh, good friends and personalities, and um, loyalty is still very important in Boston and Massachusetts politics. And, you know, there are some big players here that I think are going to make it difficult for, for progressives to unify. And, and the, the biggest is Elizabeth Warren, who has backed Marty Walsh in the past. And I think it would take a, a pretty significant political earthquake for her to throw her support to Michelle Wu or stay neutral. Uh, in this race. And, and another is someone like, you know, Ed Markey or, or Maura Healy, depending on, on what she does, uh, or Ayanna Presley, which if she were to throw her support to Michelle Wu, would, would, would recast the race. But again, that, that would be a, a very significant change for what incumbents tend to do. Well, um, I will point out that Michelle Wu worked for Elizabeth Warren. So Solomon's Choice coming up, huh? Well, you know, uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy was Elizabeth Warren's uh, law school uh, student. That's different, obviously. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I think, you know, Warren Warren was very clear that she continued her support for Ed Markey in a race. She endorsed Marty Walsh last time around against Tito Jackson. 
I think what you'd have to say is what is, has something fundamentally shifted in Walsh's approach to governing the city that would force her hand or, you know, is she going to or others just going to simply call for a new generation of leadership to take over that's more reflective of demographic changes in the city, which which is entirely plausible also. Okay. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch, as it, needless to say. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. So let's jump to uh, rank choice voting. Uh, it's Uh, Coming up on the ballot, maybe it might not have gotten as much attention if it hadn't been for the very overcrowded fourth congressional district race and Jesse Mermel, who came very close to beating Jake Auchincloss, is a very good friend of Ayanna Presley's. And Ayanna endorsed her, but, you know, she wasn't, like, out on the campaign trail for hers. Anyway, there's more and more discussion about ranked choice voting because people were frustrated that here were nine candidates. I interviewed all of them. They were, you know, all very credentialed, as I said to them. So, you know, what are voters to do as they try to make a decision about, you know, who could best lead? But before we engage you all in the response to that, here is Newton City Councilor Jake Auchincloss, won the Democratic primary. Uh, 77% of the people who voted in the crowded primary voted for somebody else. This is Auchincloss responding to this on Boston Public Radio this past week. In any first-past-the-post primary system, you're going to have that situation. I looked to Representative Catherine Clark, who, like me, was in a crowded primary and, like me, won with a plurality rather than a majority. And she has, to me, laid out a roadmap for how to go from a plurality victory in a crowded and bruising primary towards uh, national stature and national effectiveness. She's going to be a mentor of mine. uh, And I am very confident in my credentials as a pragmatic progressive, a progressive who actually has a track record to point to. So ranked choice voting is, I think people were quite uh, frustrated. I should say I uh, live in Cambridge where we have had ranked choice voting since 1941. I looked it up. <laughs> so so there you go. Erin, <laughs> um, I'll start with you. You know, I'm uh, going to show my colors here and my political science hat. I'm all in on ranked choice voting. Um, I think, and the race you just cited is a perfect example why. I mean, his response there was good. He was in a race that was first past the post. He won. He, after the election in November, is going to Congress. That said, most Democratic voters left with a, you know, a bit of a bad taste in their mouth. Ranked choice voting, voters can choose to rank as many candidates as they want. There's less wasted votes. You, you have to get 50% to win, so it weights preferences um, more democratically in my mind. There are drawbacks. It will probably take longer to get the ballots back or to get the uh, information to the voters or to, uh, as to who won. Um, but I think ranked choice voting does something quite good. It allows voters to express more of their preferences and there isn't any of that wasted vote. So to explain for people saying, OK, well, exactly how does it work? Uh, voters would be able to rate all nine candidates if you were voting in the fourth district and you would identify your first choice, your second choice, on and on. When the ballots are counted, uh, the one candidate that got the majority of first choice votes uh, would win. Uh, I think that Evan Falchuk, who is a big advocate for this, uh, has expressed it best. He calls it an instant runoff. And I also 
also think people, like in the presidential race, like a, a lot of people said, and this is anecdotal, but that I, I want to vote for Elizabeth Warren or I want to vote for Bernie, but I don't think one of them can beat Trump. So I think other people are going to go for Biden. What ranked choice voting allows you to do is you could say Warren number one. If on that number one, the, everyone's number one on their ballot, if nobody gets 50 plus one, then you know, they throw out the unvote and then they go to two. And so that's how it works. The first over 50 in that system is what ranked choice voting allows um, for voters to do. And you don't have to rank everyone. You can rank one through nine, but if you only have three top choices, you can just put those top three. So you can vote the old way under ranked choice voting, or you can express more preferences. So, Shannon, just so people understand what happened in the 4th District, Aaron just talked about getting to the 50 percent mark. Uh, Jesse Mermel, who was uh, Jake Auchincloss's uh, closest competitor, got 21 percent of the vote, and he, as the winner, got 22 percent. So, as you can see, that's far different from 50 percent. Yeah, and I think probably the math 4th District congressional primary was the best thing that could ever happen to ranked choice voting as a ballot question um, because it really made clear, you know, what the arguments for um, that ballot question is. Um, I think Aaron's right. I mean, I think the political science literature is really very clear that ranked choice voting, uh, we also call it instant runoff voting. So I want to give political scientists credits for that. We, we came up with that term okay. first. Um, All right. uh, that is the best way to express uh, voter preferences. But um, I will also say, um, and I'll use an anecdotal story, it can keep, be confusing to voters and confusing on ballot questions like can sometimes be uh, the death knell for ballot questions. Um, we and we have two political scientists doing the our faculty senate um, elections, UMass Dartmouth, and we said, oh, well, we're going to do ranked choice voting because that is the best way to express your preferences. And we had a devil of a time explaining it to an audience of people, all of whom had PhDs, right? They just couldn't mm. understand how it worked. Um, and so I think that's the real challenge going into November. Um, for proponents of ranked choice voting. Well, I will say in the People's Republic of Cambridge, we do it just fine. <laughs> so, Cambridge uh, exceptionalism. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's the, in the People's Republic, everyone is welcome and we do it just fine. Uh, Peter, weigh in on ranked choice voting, please. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't have much to add to what my colleague said, except, you know, it, 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 this, this idea of a runoff election is so radical that they do it in places like Georgia and Louisiana, <laughs> right? So it, 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 there are plenty of places around the country that use a runoff election, which is structured differently, but, you know, designed to achieve a result where the person who eventually takes political power has has received more than 50 percent of the final vote. Uh, it's designed to allow uh, better representation of, of voters from from districts. And so, you know, if the ballot initiative uh, uh, proponents can keep it really simple, you know, I think it. I think it has a shot, but I, I you know, I, I. It would be better if this had gone through the legislature, which it will not do, mm. uh, because legislatures in general prefer the electoral rules that provide them uh, with all the advantages of of incumbency. And the first past the post system uh, works for you know our most members of any legislative body outside of Cambridge. Hmm. So it's so the le- <laughs> that that makes sense. The legislature is not going to vote itself out of office or give it uh, put itself in a position where it, there might be, I guess, is what you're saying. You know, I don't think they you know, because I don't think there's, there's an electoral incentive for them to encourage more competition. And even, you know, the new who the, the 
Alcacosi will be the new member of Congress from the fourth district. I, I don't I don't see him making this a signature issue, lest he he invite uh, opposition uh, two years from now from mm-hmm. a whole uh, range of of other voters. So you know I think he was he was pretty astute to tie himself immediately to Catherine Clark, uh, and uh, I I don't expect we're going to hear much from him on this ballot initiative because it could it could jeopardize his his uh, tenure in Congress. Hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm here with three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien, Shannon Jenkins, and Peter Upataccio. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the three. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our political analysis with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College. Let's jump back into the conversation. I want to start with a tragic loss last week, the death of Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice Ralph Gantz. Uh, At first, I just want to have a moment for a couple of people who knew him very well, uh, Attorney General Maura Healey, former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, and our current governor, Charlie Baker, to remember uh, who he was. You know, he was known for his incredible work ethic. It would not be unusual for him to be the last person to leave the courthouse every evening. He'd walk down the street in the dark with his backpack on and his Red Sox cap on, and he'd go into the garage. What I saw uh, in uh, in Ralph Gantz was that he was a humanist, and in some ways he a humanist first. He saw the people behind the docket numbers and the legal issues. And those who had the privilege of working with him or going in front of him when he was a judge all spoke about his brilliance, but also about his sense of humor, his grace, his kindness, and his thoughtfulness. So many accolades for Chief Justice Ralph Gantz, and it was just a shock. He'd been ill, but was uh, planning to return to the court. Uh, Now, what this does politically is it leaves an opening, or leaves actually two, because uh, Chief Justice has to be selected, and then um, Charlie Baker, somebody else, I guess, would would, uh, take a seat. But Governor Charlie Baker now will pick that person, and he will have, as a result of this, chosen every single person on the Supreme Judicial Court. And this is historic. So let's get your response, Peter Rupitaccio. How should we look at that? Well, you know, I think two things uh, strike me about this this moment. For one, you know, it, it, it can be jarring for a lot of folks in our age to hear public officials from across the political divide uh, singing the praises of of a, a person so important to state government, right? Because we we live in such a caustic age, and uh, I, you know, so I, I think what we're going to find is the appointment of a new chief in Massachusetts uh, will be very likely without rancor, without division, 
uh, will probably not merit a lot of coverage because it won't generate the kinds of controversies that we see when presidents pick uh, Supreme Court justices. And uh, it, it, it may not even register in the minds of most citizens as a result of that. Now, I think, you know, the historic nature of it is is fascinating, but, it, you know, it's also because, um, you know, Massachusetts uh, judges are required to retire at age 70. So you have a, a guaranteed turnover uh, in the judicial system here in Massachusetts that you don't you don't necessarily have elsewhere. But it also speaks to the professionalism of our judicial nominating process. And, you know, it's pretty rare uh, that governors appoint controversial judges to the Supreme, Supreme Judicial Court. Most judges get uh, appointed and and uh, and go through the the governor's council with without um, a lot of public notice. There's just the the judicial I mean, the legal and political culture here is so different uh, than what we see in Washington D.C. I have no reason to think that the process of appointed a new chief is going to be anything different than that. But Shannon Jenkins, it seems to me to be a little bit more pressure on Governor Baker because he will have chosen every single person on the court um, to think about uh, where we are, you know, demographically, where we are socially, so that where the network might be where you'd go to pick somebody perhaps needs to be expanded in a way that it hasn't been in the past. I realize there are these pipeline stops in which there were opportunities for that to happen. But as we all know, with some of these really big jobs, you know, the folks that know each other know each other and they recommend and that rises to the level of uh, the governor's ear. So are you concerned uh, at all in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I am. And I'll say this in two ways. One, you know, I look at some of the appointments that Baker has, has made down here and they are definitely Republicans. And, you know, that, that has impacts on the decisions that they make. Um, you know, I don't think Baker having all these appointments is going to be as profound to say, you know, the Republican Party at the national level appointing so many judges to the federal judiciary. Um, but it will affect, right, the sorts of decisions and actions the courts takes. Chief Justice Gantz, right, um, the story came out, the study about racial disparities in Massachusetts courts, right, and that they are profound. Um, that study was ordered by Gantz long before our current political moment. He ordered that study. Um, it's hard for me to see a, a Baker appointee ordering the same study in before there is any sort of public pressure to to do so, really, or you know, overwhelming public pressure. Um, and so, I, I do think it's important, and I do think it has implications for the sorts of decisions um, that our judicial system will come up with. I'll also say. The seventh appointment that Baker is making is because um, one of the justices is hitting 70. And Barbara Lank. She's, she was supposed to retire in August. She decided to stay on till December, which is when she will have to retire. Um, you know, the closer I get to 70, the more I think that's a really, that's not that old. Why do they have to retire at that age? Yeah. These days, it seems awfully young to me, but that's where that opportunity comes from. And I, and I do think it will be professional, um, as Peter says. But it will have important implications for our, the future of our judiciary. Hmm. Aaron. Well, I don't have too much to add. My colleagues are really smart. Um, uh, the one thing I will say is that, yes, it is historic that um, Baker will have appointed all five justices in the last four years, and then he gets two more, so all of them. And I think sometimes we forget that um, – 
even though Baker is so popular in Massachusetts and comparatively uh, against other governors, we forget that the Republican Party in organization in Massachusetts has some real issues with Charlie Baker. They think he's a rhino, Republican in name only. So even though that organization isn't particularly strong, they, they they really regularly question Charlie Baker. That organization is much more in the Trump vein. And Charlie Baker has the right as governor to, um, you know, uh, appoint a justice. It, it, he would be a normal politician if he put in some judge that uh, the Trumpers of the Republican Party and organization in Massachusetts liked. That would be very much his right. I don't think it's something he would do, but, you know, he's got a lot of cushion in terms of uh, public opinion, and most voters, most residents pay zero attention to judicial appointees. So I don't think he'll do it, but um, it, it wouldn't be out of the question. And that brings me to the second part of this story, which is a little connected, is that you know, all of these uh, big issues just seem to roll off of Charlie Baker. Now, I'll note that in that uh, GBH Mass Inc. poll, which was about the Boston mayoral race, um, they also took a look at Walsh's favorability in Boston, but noted that Governor Charlie Baker's favorability was pretty high. Um, so Walsh is 69 percent. That's 68 percent for Baker. But while 22 percent, according to the poll, view Walsh unfavorably, just 19 percent view Baker that way. I mean, that's pretty good. So uh, there are many uh, scandals, the the police scandals, uh, other concerns that we're raising around uh, the appointments of uh, seven folks on the court. Uh, there's a whole problem with the the Weymouth compressor, but that does not seem to impact him. He 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 may not be the most uh, popular governor anymore by poll or whatever that poll was, but he still enjoys very very strong support. Um, that's a good thing, Aaron. What, how do you see it? <laughs> it? It's a confusing thing, um, and, and it's confusing for me in the sense you just listed a number of those issues um, that you know the, the compressor station, or even to my mind, I think he. I don't think he has performed well on COVID when it comes to K through twelve schools. You know, superintendents of schools don't have health advisors. Uh, you know, that's a place where I, I really expected him to lead, and I think Marty Walsh did lead. But Charlie Baker simply doesn't pay for it in polling. Um, and I think, you know, the, the quick explanation that everybody says, oh, in Massachusetts we like a Republican governor because everything else is Democratic and they're a check, that, that's not an explanation for why he doesn't pay for, you know, some – or even like the soldier's home in Holyoke. I don't know if it's necessarily fair to make the governor responsible for all those things, but most politicians, the buck stops there – they are given blame for the economy, whether or not they did anything or not. So um, Charlie Baker's uh, ability to just really skate in Massachusetts is um, confounding in some ways to me. My colleagues might have a better explanation, but I'm just struck by some of the normal rules don't apply for him. And maybe it's because he doesn't come across as a wildly partisan in a polarized era. I don't know, but it, it, it's worthy of inquiry. Peter, is it just because he's popular? Uh, I think that's 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 part of it. Um, I think you know also it's just the, there's a complexity in Massachusetts politics. And go back to the appointments to the Supreme Judicial Court, right? 
Um, you know, the, he, he's appointed almost all members of the current court. He's appointed two women and one African-American woman. Uh, Ralph Gantz, the chief justice, um, you know, appointed by Deval Patrick, got his start on the judiciary by William Weld, who got his start in the governor's office by being tough on crime, allegedly, right? So it, it, there's a lot of, there's a complexity there. And I, I, th- these appointments, I would be surprised if any appointment that Charlie Baker makes causes widespread consternation among other leading Massachusetts figures like Deval Patrick. I, I really would. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's not likely. And, and it's, it's hard for people to dislike Charlie Baker. I think Charlie Baker is, is uh, in part an enigma to, um, to many of us be, because the sky-high popularity has lasted for so long. There isn't a good precedent for it in Massachusetts politics. I think it's a mixture of him, his personality uh, at the right time and also the comparison with Washington. And, uh, you know, I think that he, he I don't know that that's particularly healthy. You know, I think that that he should have uh, stronger opposition. I just think that's good for democracy that all politicians do. Uh, but I don't also don't see this changing anytime soon. And COVID has, I would just say COVID, you know, has really changed uh, what we what we expect from our politicians. And again, there's there should be lots of room to critique the state's response. But most citizens here think that their governor has been at least paying close attention and doing what he thinks is right uh, to, okay. to see the state through this. Shannon, you want to get well, in? Well, you know, I wanted to say one of the scandals we haven't quite really managed uh, to mention, and that really shows his managerial faults to me, is the RMV scandal, right? He's had six years to fix that, and yet the RMV is still sitting on documents, licenses aren't getting suspended, and people are literally dying in New Hampshire, that horrible accident, right, because of it. Um, but it doesn't manage to stick. I will also reinforce sort of Aaron's um, point about K-12 through schooling. Um, In my spare time, I am on a school committee, Um, so I'm sort of, you know, hooked into the network of uh, school committees in Massachusetts, and there is, I would say, nearly universal frustration with the Baker administration and the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education in the way that they have handled this. Yet, surprisingly, it doesn't stick to Baker at all. So it's odd to me that he he describes himself as a manager and a technocrat, but there are now, what are we, over six years in, right, many managerial failings that don't seem to stick to him. You know, I'll also note that, um, you know, he is not prohibited from seeking a third term, right? And there's been Mm -hmm. a lot of conversation about whether he will. And... um, you know, the Democrats, if they, they need to start figuring out what their angle is. I think to all of our conversations here, there are angles to take against Charlie Baker, that he presents himself as a likable manager, right? But there's lots of managerial failures that have happened on his watch. Um, but because of sort of the contrast with national politics, you know, we're seeing a little, we might call it like a rally around the flag effect, you know, where People of all parties in a time of crisis will rally around a leader. I think Baker is benefiting from that a little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, we're going to start after November looking towards that next big election. Um, And Charlie Baker probably could win a third term if he wants it. So if the Democrats Mm want to challenge him, they need to sort of figure that out and start making sort of a cohesive, coherent, sustained attack on his record. Okay, let me switch to national politics. Um, 
want to just get the temperature of what's happening between uh, on the campaign trail and the presidential campaign trail. If people uh, may know that uh, President Trump has been under uh, quite a flurry of criticism uh, for comments that he made on the record taped by uh, reporter Bob Woodward about not playing up COVID, more importantly, deliberately not playing up COVID and um, downplaying it is, is his terminology. And another of other comments that he made on some of the issues of the day, including uh, racial justice. Well, ABC uh, held a town hall with undecided voters. Uh, I'm, I'm questioning that, but okay. But they said they were. <laughs> and um, President Trump answered some questions straight from from the voters, and it was uh, quite interesting because they they really pressed him. Here's a clip. This is President Donald Trump at the ABC News Town Hall uh, last week, Tuesday, answering an audience member's question about the race problem in America. You have yet to address and acknowledge okay. that there's been a race problem in America. So if you go, well, I hope there's not a race problem. I can tell you there's none with me because I have great respect for all races for everybody. This country is great because of it. But when you go back six months and you take a look at what was happening, you can't even compare that with past administrations. When you look at income levels and a lot of things because of the job situation where they had the lowest income, the best, the best unemployment numbers they've ever had, the black community by far. So that was President uh, Donald Trump at the ABC News Town Hall. I understand that uh, Joe Biden is also going to under go a, a similar kind of format. Uh, one more thing, uh, more recently than that, even as uh, Bob Woodward's book uh, continues to sell out and more clips keep coming out uh, from the book about what the president said and when he said it, um, he most recently has, well, just embarrassed the, the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, who said uh, there will not be a virus distribution that is viable until next year and gave a sort of timeline of what we could expect. And the president said of him, he is confused. He does not know we will have this vaccine in October or November. Also disagreed strongly with Redfield, reminding people that wearing a mask is the best way to defend against the COVID. Once again, COVID is uh, becoming a, a bigger issue in all campaigns and certainly uh, in the national campaign. And it's about leadership uh, with regard to that. I'm going to get your response to that. But I first would like to put on the table as well what's happening with Democratic nominee Joe Biden. He, in turn, has been criticizing the president about his leadership around COVID, of course, but he was in Florida uh, most recently uh, giving a speech aimed heavily at Puerto Rican and Hispanic voters. Um, this was his first visit to Florida as a Democratic presidential nominee, and this also was uh, last week. I'm running to be president of all America, including three million American citizens living in Puerto Rico. I'm not going to steal the money that desperately needed to reconstruct the island in order to build a wall along the border that does nothing to keep Americans safe. I'm not going to suggest that we sell or trade, as was mentioned earlier, Puerto Rico. I'm not going to throw paper towels at people whose lives have just been devastated by a hurricane. All right. So that's what he said. Now, what's gone viral since that visit uh, was a moment that he spent with the singer of the international hit, Louis Fonzi. The hit is Despacito. First of all, I'll tell you what he did, but let's take a listen to the songs in case people don't know what it is. Here it is. Despacito. 
All right. So you you you've heard it. Um, Justin Bieber did a take on it as well. Uh, the important thing to remember is that the man who sang the song, Louis Fonse, introduced him. And then uh, Democratic nominee Joe Biden said, I just have one more thing to say. Then he hit his phone and played the song. And, you know, people responded to it. But of course, it's being interpreted as pandering. But I just wanted to uh, to put the context that the 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 creator of the song introduced him at this event. So there we are. In this moment on the presidential campaign trail, uh, there's a lot of room there for you all to respond. I will start with you, Shannon. Um, what say you right now uh, as we look at uh, what's going on on the campaign trail? So much to say. So much going on there. Um, you know, one of the things that I am really just struck by is how we in sort of the political circles really like dissect every little last moment and every little last issue right, um, as, as if they matter, right? And I would just go back to the president's, you know, <laughs> quote that he could shoot someone on, I don't know, Fifth Avenue, right? And it wouldn't matter. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, that's a large part of what's happening in this presidential election, you know? It's hard for me to understand those voters at the ABC town hall that are not decided yet. Like, who are these people? Um, but I do think that all of these moments that go viral, that happen, um, only serve to reinforce sort of people's opinions. Um, we talk in political science about affective partisanship or negative partisanship. And what the research is increasingly showing is that people are less driven by love for their own team. So if you're, say, a Red Sox fan, that's less what's motivating you than hate for the other team, like if you hate the New York Yankees, right? So what we're seeing is all these moments designed to reinforce that negative feeling against the other team that go viral um, to mobilize voters, right? Because this is ultimately going to be about getting your voters to cast their votes, about mobilization. Um, and so I think that's how these moments happen, um, why they are increasingly negative, because they just, that's what gets people fired up these days. All right, Peter. You know, I love uh, Shannon's analogy there. And I, I was thinking, you know, every time I go to uh, Fenway Park, back when there's real baseball happening in a, with, a, uh, <laughs> with crowds, you know, there's always an old timer sitting there keeping score in one of those old fashioned, you know, notebooks where they're jotting down every ball and strike right, and where each, where each hit goes. And I love watching those folks because those folks are there because they really love the game. And so many of us are there because we really hate the other team that's playing, particularly if the Yankees are in town and we want to, to demonstrate that. Most voters are not like that old-timer who's keeping track of each ball and strike and really thinking about uh, the game over the course of nine innings. You know, that's not what motivates most people to pay attention to electoral politics uh, and to presidential elections. And so this whole, you know, the silliness over Despacito is a good example of that. It, it takes over as an issue for a day. And it just simply reinforces where so many people already are. It doesn't change any voters' minds. It is it is a, a carefully edited um, moment designed to either make you hate Biden more, make you hate Trump more, but ultimately is a meaningless uh, issue. So, and I, I you know, I, I think that many voters who go on these town halls and say they're undecided might just be undecided so they can ask really great questions. And I'm glad they are because they 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 showed you how you can push against the president. I assume they'll do the same thing with 
with Joe Biden and ask really good follow-up questions. And mm-hmm. what's fascinating about it is that you, you get a really good exchange uh, that's unscripted and, and uh, it, it, it can help to illuminate uh, issues and go after the, the relatively small number of voters who haven't, hadn't made up their mind. But even then, I can't imagine those people are actually watching. I think most people who are paying attention to an event like that already know how they're going to vote. So, you know, I, I think what, what it comes down to is what, what are the fundamentals of the election that does not favor the incumbent president uh, by any, any stretch, just given the, the impact of the, the pandemic, uh, the state of the economy. Um, but, you know, it's still, it's, there, there's still a long way to go here and things can change. But I think the fundamentals of this election favor uh, the challenger. Um, I would say this uh, before you speak, Aaron. I did a quick glance at the early voting schedule for all of the states, and Illinois, Minnesota, Virginia start early voting for the November election. Hear me now. Last week, September 18th. Okay. So if people are undecided um, and going to vote early, there's not many of them. The people who are going to vote early, as we know, usually have made up their minds. And those states are open now for early voting. Um, Others come on as early as the 1st of October. But I thought it was somewhat startling to see that Illinois, Minnesota and Virginia, people are early voting as we speak. Yep, and I'll add to that, uh, Florida's the end of this month, too. I want to say the 25th, but I know it's in September in terms of early voting opening up. October 24th, Um, uh, I have on my list that... Oh, am yes. I wrong? Yeah. Okay, well, then I'm, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but in terms of that Desposito, like part of what's going on there is, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden isn't doing as well amongst Hispanic voters as Hillary Clinton did in this moment. That's not to say it can't change. Um, Bloomberg, uh, my, uh, the former, you know, presidential candidate and former mayor of New York, is dropping $100 million in advertising, many of it in Spanish language in Florida. So, you know, forgetting the ridiculousness of that, you know, soundbite moment, what it says is that the Democrats and the Biden team are, are really trying to get um, the Hispanic vote in Florida, and that's notoriously hard to do because it's a misnomer really to say Hispanic vote or Latinx vote because Cubans and Venezuelans are much more conservative, Puerto Ricans, you know, it's a much more diverse community than and harder to win over because it takes such a diversity of message. So I think that the takeaway uh, from that real moment that has legs for the whole of the race is that Joe Biden, if he strengthens his amongst Hispanics. If he wins Florida, you know, there's ways Trump could win. But if Biden were to win Florida, he's going to be president. Uh, I I think that's an easy bet. Um, I, too, watched uh, the forum last week with voters. And like my colleagues, I was like, oh, I love seeing the voters ask tough questions. They're great. It makes me feel good about democracy for a moment. Um, But uh, in watching that, I was struck by, you know, um, Donald Trump was not speaking to the individual voters that asked him questions. Love him or hate him, Donald Trump is very effective at willful denialism. He just says things that are not true. You played some of that in the clip. You know, this was the best ever for African Americans six months ago. A, not true. B, in the last six months, we've had a pandemic that is disproportionately killing um, people of color, black people, and those are the individuals losing their jobs at much higher rates. So, like, not true. 
um, Pinocchios, all that other stuff. But the average voter, if you like Donald Trump, he just told you what you want to hear. You know, I want to hear, you know, have um, the dessert. You won't gain weight. (laughs) That's what he's telling you. He's telling his supporters what they want to hear. And for undecideds, people who don't pay that much attention, they don't know it's a lie. Um, And and that's not to disparage them. It's that their life is not politics. So, uh, you know, he's good at what he does. It might be evil genius good, but he is good at what he does. He understands most voters don't pay attention. And he he can frame the issue and tell you he did something even if he didn't. And I think our media, our political commentators, self-included, we're not used to that. Uh, We're not used to that um, constant willful denialism of reality. And then we know it's willful denialism because, as you said, the Atlantic piece about um, uh, the way he talks about veterans and military, uh, the Bob Woodward uh, book about how he talked about this virus is very deadly and it hurts young people or young people are susceptible. He knows these things, and then, as we've seen in political advertising, he says the exact opposite thing publicly. So um, he's hard to beat because there's just not a playbook for that kind of denialism. Well, we'll have to leave it there, and um, we'll be gathering around this fireplace to have more conversation um, in the upcoming weeks. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Shannon Jenkins is a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And Peter Upertaccio is the founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and an associate professor of political science at Stonehill College. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Kate Dario. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.